Very briefly, the GLS, and we don't mean to speak in code language, that stands for Global Leadership Summit, and uh, that's coming up on August 8th and 9th. If you look inside your bulletin, you can register now. The site on North River's events page on our, our website went live this week with a link for that. The price is $89 through July, uh, June 25th. After June 25th, it goes up another $30. And the code that you need is listed inside the bulletin. Uh, so we need about 30 people who know they're going to register rather quickly. They've changed some of how they do that. But for us to qualify for some of the things that make it a better experience in August, we need to uh, begin to get people enrolled in that. So if you'd consider that, please do. And uh, we're going to read from Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 here this morning. <clears throat> it's on the front of your handout if you want to read along. Paul is writing. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Father, we pray this morning and we ask that uh, as we walk through this portion of Paul's letter to the Philippian church, that you will make this concept of living in the peace of God come alive for us and make it practical so that we don't just hear about it and get to the point where we understand what Paul was writing about today, but that rather we would be equipped to live it to a higher degree and with greater frequency and consistency than ever before. I believe, Lord, that you want us to know your peace, to live in your peace on a daily basis, to have lives that are lived at a higher quality than the average person out there because of you, because of your presence in us, and because of how we are learning to follow you, because of your indwelling and your deep, enduring presence in our lives. And Lord, that's my prayer for every person here, whether they are brand new and kicking the tires of faith or whether they have been walking with you for years and years or decades and decades, that you would increase our knowledge and ability to walk in your peace on a daily basis as a result of our time here today. Guide us through every aspect of this week. We come here today knowing this isn't our entire uh, spiritual journey. This is the hour when we gather together to get a bit of coaching from your word to recognize that we need to stand in strength together, to call on you together as a community of faith, and then to go forward into the world to make a difference. 
And so we ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Question, have you ever had just one of those days where everything seems to go wrong? I know we have those every once in a while. Maybe you can relate to the kind of day I'm going to tell you about. This account comes from a legendary letter written to a workers' compensation board which had requested more details on an injury claim that had been filed. And so the, the person who had filed was writing back to that board. This is what he wrote. I'm writing in response to your request for additional information. In block number three of the accident reporting form, I put poor planning as the cause for my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust that the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a 10-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carry them down hand by hand, I decided to lower them to the ground in a barrel using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building on the 10th floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went to the roof, loaded the 500 pounds of bricks, then went back down to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure the slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block number, one, not block, block number 11 of the accident report that I weigh 165 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of somewhere around the fifth floor, I met the barrel on its way down. <laughs> this explains the fractured skull and broken collarbone. I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground, and the bottom of the barrel fell out when it hit with such a loud thud. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 30 pounds. I refer again to my weight in block number 11 of the accident reporting form. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the fifth floor, I met the barrel coming up again. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and lacerations to my legs and lower body. The second encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks on the ground 10 stories below, and fortunately, only three of my vertebrae were cracked. I am very sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks, in pain and unable to stand, watching the empty barrel 10 stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind I let go of the rope. <laughs> now, if that isn't the definition of a bad day, I don't know what is. My stress level goes up when I just think about that story. But then it comes down again when I begin laughing so hard at the bozo uh, attempt here. Now, when you think of it, what are the primary causes of stress and anxiety in our lives? Most of the time, stress and anxiety comes from times when you don't know what is coming next or when you lack the appropriate levels of time or help or there are circumstances that are beyond our control. You know what it's like to lie there on that pile of bricks wa watching the barrel of life, so to speak, hurtling down at you and you're defenseless. 
realizing you can't change anything about what is coming next. Bricks and barrels and pulleys seem like they are coming at you from every direction. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit about how we live in the peace of God and get away from the anxiety that sometimes causes us such grief and pain in this world. And in doing so, I want to make a note to some of you who may be absolute beginners here. You're a spiritual seeker, and you haven't decided yet whether you even want to follow Jesus Christ, but you're here with somebody else. The letter that we're learning from this morning was written to people who are committed Christians, and some of these Christians have lost focus and are wrapped up in all the anxieties of life that cause bitterness and quarreling and stuff like that. So the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, offers some timeless advice about finding and living in the peace of God. This is a peace that he describes as going beyond all understanding and beyond all the circumstances of our life. It transcends, and it has the power to transform even the worst days of our lives. And I want you to know that if you're still kicking the tires and you are a seeker, this is one of those lessons that you can begin to apply because the nearer that you draw to the Lord, the more that you too will gain some measure of his peace. And it's applicable for you as well. So here's the main thing that I'm going to try and get across this morning, the, the central idea. Living in the peace of God rises from a lifestyle that looks to the right source, lives with the right mindset, and follows the right models. Let me walk you through that. How do we live in the peace of God? The first way we do that is we must realize that God's peace is greater than my troubles. It's greater than your troubles. So Paul writes in the opening paragraph, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Notice that Paul names names in this letter. He mentions two women who are in conflict with each other, Euodia and Syntyche. Some wise guy referred to them as odious and soon too touchy. We don't, we don't know much about these two women except that their conflict has been so acute that Paul's heard about it all the way back in Rome where he's writing from and it's preserved 2,000 years later so that every time people read this particular letter, their names come up again. Paul doesn't dwell on the particulars. Instead, he implies that one of the first readers of the letter is this loyal co-worker to whom he is writing, and he's asking him to get involved and to apply the lessons that Paul is going to unveil for us in the case of these two friends who are feuding, and it's drawing the attention of the church away from what they should be doing. The irony in this situation arrives when we realize where Paul was when he was writing. Philippians is considered to be one of the Apostle Paul's prison letters. So Paul was writing somewhere around 60 to 62 AD, and he was writing during the two years that he was held in house arrest in the city of Rome. Day after day, he was chained up to a Roman soldier, unable to move about freely. Imagine the impact of that reality when these friends of Paul read this letter and their names in it. They suddenly realized that Paul was hearing about their feud all the way back there, and that the same Paul whom they were praying for because of the misery of his conditions was actually trying to solve their problems in pointing them to Jesus. That, my friends, is what we call in the theological world a dope slap. And it was a, a wake-up call for them. 
Now, here's one of the simple lessons that we realize. Christians are not perfect people who always get these things right. We are people in process. And so we also come to realize, though, that Paul was anticipating that Christ followers are also people who know how to push the reset button when something in the scriptures addresses the problems that we're going through at any given time. And so he's anticipating that we will apply this wisdom to life. The first step in that is realizing that God's peace is greater than our troubles. Here's the second step in that process. Look to the right source. Verse 4, he picks this up and he begins to get into the meat of his challenge. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says this again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And he gives the reminder that the Lord is near. So he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's the promise, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Notice that one of the key ways that we prepare for a lifestyle of peace is through a combination of prayer, rejoicing, and thanksgiving. Paul is not saying that prayer and rejoicing will exempt you and me from every bad situation that happens in life. Rather, he implies that making prayer, rejoicing, and thanksgiving part of your habitual patterns will prepare you to better deal with the kinds of challenges that most often cause stress and anxiety or relational difficulty in our lives. He also provides an important contrast he tells us that all of these things are the opposite of being anxious. Do you know when I get anxious? Do you know when you most likely get anxious? I get anxious when I don't ask God to help early on, and I'm running behind, and I'm getting stressed over that, and I think that whatever the problem is, it's mine and it's mine alone. Usually I've ignored good advice that has been given, making the problem worse along the way, and now I begin to project my emergency onto everybody else around me. But it's only an emergency because I've allowed to get it to that point. Can you identify with that? We all go through that from time to time. It's usually when we ignore God's wisdom, we try to do things our own way, and we get caught feeling it's, it's all on me, it's all on you. I can only begin to tell you how many times I have watched other people do the same thing that I sometimes get caught in. Why does this combination of prayer, rejoicing, and thanksgiving work? Look at verse 7. Something happens when we continually present our request to the Lord in this way. And here's the promise that Paul writes about. He says, if we do this, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God guards your hearts and minds. What a wonderful phrase that is. God's peace, in effect, acts as a garrison. The heart and the mind are combined here in this figure of speech as the center of who we are and how we process information and what we feel about it. And together, they are the seat of the emotions. He says that he will bring into that reality a peace that passes all understanding. Paul is saying that you will be touched with the supernatural in that statement. He's saying that this is the finger of God, this is where the presence of God shows up, that you can be in the midst of radical chaos, but if you're surrendering that to him, 
and you are asking for his advice, and you are asking him to help you through the day, it is amazing how God will meet you in the chaos, and while the chaos rages, you can be at peace in the midst of all of that. Now, how do we know that Jesus had this ability? He showed it in a number of ways. Do you remember the scene where, where Jesus was asleep in the boat and the storm rises up and the disciples who are the veteran sailors on the Sea of Galilee are all stressed out and they're calling out, we're going to die, we're going to die, and, and they get upset when they find Jesus sleeping in the boat. How can you do that? Don't you realize we're all going to drown? And he gets up and he kind of you know, rubs the cobwebs out of his eyes and he speaks to the wind and it dies down. And he was at calm the whole time. Even as he was marching on his way toward the cross, they get stressed out, they run. He can, keeps walking forward, knowing exactly what his purpose was, knowing exactly what was coming. In the midst of the greatest trial of his life, Jesus was nonetheless steadfast and had this peace that goes beyond our understanding. But there's a condition that's involved in this for us to embrace this. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness may not be the best translation of that word. Uh, the word forbearance is used in some of the older translations, and it's actually more accurate. This gentle forbearance is the ability to accept others and submit oneself to wise instruction in the midst of the stresses of life. So Paul is not just saying that we passively pray and then rejoice and all of our problems just magically go away. He's saying that rather there is the expectation that we will act on sound advice and submit our way to his way and to his wisdom. And as we do that, as we live this as a pattern, not just as a get out of trouble card, that the peace of God begins to become a part of our regular experience. Here's the third step in this process. We must adopt the right mindset. Verse 8, Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. There is so much garbage in our world. If we don't filter what we take in, we are in trouble. So Paul presents to us eight filters for our thinking. His advice is that everything that we see and hear should pass through these eight filters. And if it doesn't make, make it through these filters, then it shouldn't be allowed to pass through and to dwell in our hearts or to dwell in our minds. So what are the eight filters? Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, he says, these are the things that we should think on and dwell on and that we should magnify. The point isn't that we should stick our heads in the sand and ignore problems. The point is that we should not allow our problems to dominate our mindset. That's when stress begins to take over. I think of one of the old hymns in the church that I grew up in. It's called Count Your Blessings. And I still remember the, the stanzas from, from that particular old hymn. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, if you're not familiar with billows, it has to do with the waves that are crashing as they get bigger. Uh, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. 
Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will soon be singing as the days go by. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. And then the chorus goes something like this. Um, Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Living in the peace of God rises from a lifestyle that is caught up in a hymn like that. A lifestyle that looks to the right source, to, to God to be the source of our peace, that lives with the right mindset, filtering all the stuff that's happening and not forgetting that God is powerful and that he's with us. And then following the right models. So the last challenge is to follow a healthy model. In verse 9, Paul ends this section and he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. None of this makes sense if we do not consistently take what we learn and then put it into practice in life. There's a whole school of thought that has developed around this idea. They, they call it the, the power of positive thinking. Uh, some from that school uh, some of the thinking from that school is right on the money. Robert Schuller, some of you may remember him from the years that he was on television, he made this a central focus at the Crystal Cathedral. And at this level, he was absolutely right that we need to think more positively and not get sucked into the negative that robs all of our energy. Some other teachers would take this to an extreme, out of context, as if following this model would exempt you from life's difficulties. Let's just be clear enough to say that isn't true. One example of that would be Rhonda Burns' book and concept of The Secret. It's another unhealthy offshoot from what Paul has written here. This is built on the idea that whatever you put out there is going to come back to you. It's more similar to karma, which isn't a biblical idea. It's an Eastern mysticism concept rather than biblical truth. And it's based on what's called the law of attraction. That if you think good thoughts, you will attract energy to yourself. The problem with it is that the opposite then is also true, that if you think negative thoughts, that it's, then bad things will also come your way. Here's why this is pure and utter nonsense. This kind of thinking makes you the center of the universe, as if whatever you think and you feel controls everything else around you. And it discounts the reality that sometimes there are people who do evil in this world and you had nothing to do with creating that and ignores the reality that we live in the context of a broken world. But here's the promise. And it challenges us to watch for the presence of God. Verse 9 ends with this statement from Paul, and the God of peace will be with you. Not only do we get the peace of God, but even better, we get the God of peace. Part of what we've learned here is that there are levels of prayer that Paul has introduced us to. Uh, think of the ways that we pray sometimes as Christ followers. Sometimes we pray for current stuff, for things that we desire in life or that we even need in life. When we pray for help, we ask for this, we ask for that. That's the first level. The second level that we pray has to do with times when we're in trouble, and there are times when we ask God to remove obstacles or to get us out of trouble. 
And that's okay, but it's also still very self-oriented. The third level is when we pray with thanksgiving in the midst of our trials. That takes our prayer life to a whole different reality. When we pray with thanksgiving, we are reminding ourselves that we do experience good things in life, not just the bad, even on one of those down days. And we are bringing to mind that God has already cared for us and blessed us in the past, which helps us trust Him with the future. And in the process of moving to that level where we thank God even in the midst of the most difficult days, we experience the peace of God that He brings in the midst of our challenges in life. And this is what we learn about the peace of God. God's peace goes far beyond all normal understanding. This doesn't mean that we cannot uh, experience it. Uh, Rather, we realize that when we do experience it, it is a God thing. It is not something that we conjured up, but in the process of drawing near to God, He blesses us with this peace that others can't fully understand because it doesn't make sense apart from a life that is wrapped up in Jesus. And this overwhelming presence of God begins to transform our circumstances. Paul writes about this from a prison cell where he is having to depend on this kind of reality every single day. And so he's lending some of the greatness of what he has learned to the folks back in the city of Philippi who can't seem to get along. The second thing we learn about the peace of God is that God's peace acts as a guard for our hearts and our minds. This is God's way of protecting us against excessive worry, excessive anxiety. When we rejoice in the midst of our circumstances, which takes discipline, it takes developing a habit to do that, to say, I will run contrary to the way that the world around me reacts, and I will nonetheless remember that God is good and I will praise Him even in the midst of difficulty. When we do... And when we pray with thanksgiving, the peace of God acts like a sentinel, like a watch guard in your life, marching back and forth to guard your heart, to guard your mind from being overwhelmed. Some of these thoughts about levels of peace come from uh, another pastor, Monty Newton, from Arvada, Colorado, in in, a talk that he gave called Practicing Peace. We need to practice these concepts. Knowing about them alone is not enough. Newton wraps up this concept with a a, a story from a a storyteller named Kevin Kling in Minnesota. Kling was born with a birth defect. His left arm was disabled and much shorter than his right. And then when he was in his early 40s, he was in a motorcycle accident that nearly killed him, and it paralyzed his healthy right arm. While he was in the hospital recovering from this accident, Kling learned a life-changing lesson about these three phases of prayer. Remember, in the first phase of prayer, we we pray to get things. In the second phase of prayer, we pray to get out of trouble. In the third phase, we we give God thanks in the midst of everything that's going on. While he was in the rehab for this accident, Kling learned his great lesson about this third phase of prayer, about giving praise to God in every circumstance. This is what he wrote. I've been through many surgeries during my six-week stay in the hospital, and each day I would ride the elevator to the ground floor and try to take a walk. That was my job. 
9-11 had happened just a week before, and as our country was entering this trauma, I was living my own. After my walk, my wife Mary and I went into the gift shop, and on one particular day, she asked if I wanted an apple. She said they looked really good. Now, you need to realize I hadn't tasted food in over a month. I'd lost a lot of weight because, of, because food had no appeal to me. So I said no, but she persisted. Come on, try it. So finally, I said all right, and I took a bite. And for some reason, that was the day when flavor returned. And it overpowered all of the, the drugs that I'd been taking, all the painkillers, all the antibiotics. And that powerful sweetness rushed in right from that apple. He said, oh, it was incredible. He goes on and he says, I started to cry. I cried for the first time in years. The tears flowed, and as the anesthesia and antibiotics flushed through my tears, it burned my eyes. And between the sweetness of that apple and the burning from my tears, it felt so good to be alive, and I blurted out, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for this life. And he wrote, that's when my prayer shifted again to giving thanks. And I experienced this wave of the presence of God. Living in the peace of God rises from a lifestyle that looks to the right source, lives with the right mindset, and follows the right models. And my conviction is that God wants us to experience this peace more and more as a regular reality. We won't unless we apply it but the more that we apply these lessons, even if you're an absolute beginner, you will experience a greater measure of the peace of God and a greater experience with the God of peace. Happy Mother's Day, moms. I hope that you'll take this home to everybody in your family. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving us such practical instructions at times in the scriptures and reminders that no, we don't need to live perfect lives, but because we don't live perfect lives and we don't live in a perfect world, you give us instructions about how to push the reset button in our lives and to again experience on a daily ongoing basis greater and greater measures of your peace. And our simple prayer today is that you would give us this peace, that you would set in our hearts a determination to thank you and to see your blessings in the midst of every single day, to praise what is good and excellent and, and right and pure and all these other things and to use that as a filter. And that you will give us the ability to lead exceptional lives because of the presence of Jesus in our lives. It's in his name that we pray today and that we give and that we worship. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for making this a part of your celebration and your start to the week. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward and uh, we have an opportunity to give back to God through our offerings. You don't have to do it this way. We have a way that you can do that online. We have a, a church app as well. Uh, but we encourage you to be faithful and, and to be generous toward God because he is so generous to us. Have a blessed day.